0: Before we begin, a note of warning. The language used and the topics explored in this podcast are not suitable for listeners younger than 18. Your discretion is advised. From the Spade & Archer Studios, welcome to
1: Behind the Yard Sign, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to reveal the real world of real estate with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Amy Romberg. Amy Bromberg, it's so great to see you.
0: Justin, your face is always one of my favorite faces, even on the radio. It's not the radio, but you know what I mean. (laughs) He's
1: got a face for podcasting. (laughs) We recently redid our logo. I was told, you have to stick your face on the logo. And I was like, all right, we'll stick the face on the logo. I was at this meeting and they were doing headshots. And I was like, sweet, free headshots, awesome. I haven't had a headshot done in probably four years. Uh-huh. I know I look different, but to me, I'm like, I still look just like that. Except for that it's like Photoshop within an inch of fiction, you know? And like,
0: <laughs> It's probably smart to get headshots like yearly. I mean, I see some people's headshot and I'm like, wow, that's the same headshot you've had for 10 years. Oh, um, 20 years. Yeah. And and we all just uh, grow and change and get better looking, of course. So we probably do need to update our headshots regularly.
1: I do feel like real estate, there's like an ongoing joke where it's always the woman who's like in her seventies, but the headshot is like in her twenties. And you're like, Hmm, it definitely looks like you. Like, you know, it's like super century 21, you know, like back in the day, like she's got the gold jacket on still, you know, like, wow, right
0: on. (laughs) Totally. But now that I feel like I used to be a little bit judgy about that. And now I think I'm in this place where I'm like, shit, you just don't have fucking time.
1: <laughs> like no time it's like, to get headshots done. Yeah, down. it's yes. just
0: like not the thing that rises to the level of necessity when there are so many other things around you that rise to the level of like urgent need every day. Well,
1: I was thinking like, oh, maybe as a, as a home stager, we could buy people headshot packages that we could be like, hey, yes. this is a great photographer. I love it. Like as like a little like a thank you gift or something. But yeah. then also, isn't that kind of like getting your wife a vacuum?
0: Yes,
1: <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> um, oh, so but I did, what are you to say about my headshot, (laughs) man.
0: (laughs) I did once buy my wife a washer, um, but she was very excited about it. And it's not as shitty as it sounds, I promise. And it's Glenn. You know, Glenn. Glenn's like, oh, totally. my God.
1: <laughs> I bought my husband a cookbook once. It was very touch and go. Oh, uh,
0: yeah.
1: But <laughs> definitely changed my life. Now we have a different dish every night. It's oh pretty fantastic. See, so yeah. so you, my, I, I owe Rachel Ray much thanks. You
0: enriched <laughs> everybody's lives with that. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. He did not take it as an insult. Uh, so we have a little bit of a special episode today. AIM. We are going to listen to talk that I did for Windermere Symposium. I think this was in like 2019. This was in, oh my gosh, where was I I think it was in Spokane. I've been asked to come and do a talk there and we're going to take a listen to it. It's called Flopportunity. This is in a big auditorium. And so you're going to hear people laughing, hopefully. (laughs) Um, And there were visuals that were up on the board. And so you'll hear me referring to visuals, but I think there's enough to get through to like, understand uh, what's going on. So, So let's take a listen to that and then we'll come back and we will discuss. I'm excited. This is me, Justin Reardon, speaking at Windermere Symposium in Spokane in 2019. And we'll give a little update since then. We'll be right back. I'm gay. And I knew that you guys were probably thinking, like, owns a home staging company, wears pink pants on stage, heterosexual. And when I said that, you were like, holy shift. (laughs) Right? Were you totally thinking that? I was too. As a gay man, I've always looked for role models of masculinity It's something that doesn't come very easily to me. And one of my favorites as of right now, outside of Obie, would be. um, Ron Swanson, he's a character on 30 Rock who oddly looks a lot like Obi, Uh, that's crazy. I've got a (laughs) type, don't worry about it, I'm married, it's cool. Ron Swanson once said, luck is a concept invented by the weak to explain their failures. Let's just look at that one more time. Luck is a concept invented by the weak to explain their failures. July 4th, 2018 started off as a pretty cool day. We were having a dinner party. There were 18 people coming over for dinner. Eight people were going to spend the night at our house. Uh, We were lighting firecrackers out in front of my house as I'm like literally lighting this explosive device. My landlord from my Seattle business calls me and says, I have bad news. And I was like, okay. And he goes, your building is on fire. I said, well, have you seen it yet? (laughs) And he's like, no, I haven't seen it yet. I was like, well, why don't you go and take a look at it and then give me a call back and let me know how bad it is. And um, I tried not to look like shocked because, you know, I have all these dinner guests and my family's there and lighting firecrackers. And I waited and I went inside and I Googled the term Seattle fire. And this is what I saw.
0: a three alarm fire that broke out tonight is still smoldering in Soto right now. Chopper 7 was over the scene shortly after it broke out on East Marginal Way South, around seven o'clock tonight. Just look at those flames.
1: So needless to say, um, my heart kind of dropped because that's my building. That's where we were in Soto and it was on fire and there were flames shooting out of the front of it and hoses shooting into it and smoke building out of the top of it. And um, I felt terrified and I didn't really know what to do. And so I had to make some decisions. Am I going to just give up, um, shut down half of my business. It was only 18 months old in Seattle at that point. It had been in Portland for a couple of years. Or was I going to take this and somehow turn it into a flopportunity? Uh, let's talk about that word really quick, opportunity. So opportunity is flop plus opportunity equals a flopportunity. Um, and it was coined by my good friend Donna Wade, uh, who I have known since high school, and we're on the phone talking about this very incident when we came up with this. And so we're going to break down this this word just for a few minutes here, okay? What do flopportunities Opportunities look like. They're really easy to recognize, okay? They look like failures and accidents and miscommunications and misappointments, embarrassments, mistakes, disappointments, dropped balls, injuries. They look like flops. Flop opportunities look exactly like flops because they're the same exact thing. So, how do flops make us feel? When we fail, how do you feel? These are some words that we might feel like, angry or frustrated, shocked, weak, depressed, sad, confused, stupid, mad. When it all comes down to it, we feel scared. We feel scared when we fail. That's the thing that we have that's inside of us. But there's something super cool about being scared, and we're just gonna look at this little math equation. Scared is simply excitement plus fear. So if you take excited and you add fear to it, that gets you scared. Let's just give an example here. You see a lion, you feel scared, you run away. That's scared, right? You see some cheesecake, you feel excitement, you run towards it. It's the exact same feeling, just one has fear and one doesn't. You like cheesecake a lot, don't you? I know, this is good. (laughs) It's good stuff, man. So here's the really cool thing about math. Math is fun. If scared equals excited plus fear, then scared minus fear equals excited. Does that make sense to everybody here? Yes? If you take the fear out of it, it's kind of crazy. You can still use the motivation without the fear behind it. So we choose to be excited. So what exactly does a flopportunist? Flop we're just making up words left and right here today, what exactly does a flop opportunist look like? We are endlessly optimistic. We can choose to be afraid or we can choose to be excited because ultimately what it comes down to is choices. Right? I love drag queens. They always get my point across a lot better. Again, gay. Okay, so just in case you forgot. um, (laughs) Endlessly optimistic. We choose to be excited. We choose to be happy. We choose to look at an opportunity, like something like a building burning down. And we choose to be excited about that, which comes down to grittiness. So does everybody know this term, grit? Yes, there's this fabulous book by Angela Duckworth called of all things, Grit. It's persuasive and fascinating, really good book. Grit is this concept that you don't quit. When you come down to something that you're going to work on, you work on it until it's done. And some people are gritty, and some people are not. And you can actually find out if you're gritty or not if you go to Angela's website, AngelaDuckworth.com slash GritScale. You can take this little test. It takes like maybe five minutes, and it will tell you what your grittiness is for that day. I belong to this business accountability group, and every month we meet and we sit down and we actually have to tell everybody else what our grittiness score was that day and it changes a little bit this was mine today 4.7 i tested 95 percent higher than most in american adults in a recent survey so pretty gritty which makes me a flopper tunist. all right so gritty we tend to be a little bit ridiculous people look at us and they're like wow you're ridiculous if you say to somebody my building burned down today and i'm super excited about it they kind of go like this And it's okay. We can choose to listen to those people or we can choose not to. In fact, here's the awesome thing about being a flop opportunist. We absolutely know that we are in control of nothing in our lives except for how we react to it. If my husband says, gosh, you look terrible today. I can't control him. All I can control is how I react to it. And I can say, so do you. <laughs> or. If my building burns down, I could be super sad, and I can throw myself on the floor and cry about it. Or I can say, you know what, this is an opportunity. We're going to come back even better after this. So sometimes we can be a bit ridiculous. The other thing that we do is that we prepare for the worst, and we hope for the best. Which seems kind of weird to say that you could prepare for a flop, you could, like, Anticipate failure. Many of us prepare for success. I like to prepare for failure just in case. And then I like to hope for the best things that are going to happen in the world. When it comes down to it, preparedness is our superpower. So everybody has their superpower. opportunists they love preparedness. They like to be ready for it. So every once in a while, I'm going to put up one of these screens. And if you want to take a picture of something, this is like the summation of all those things. We're just going to go through this real quick. So qualities of opportunists, we're endlessly optimistic. We're gritty. Others think we're ridiculous. We prepare for the worst and we hope for the best. That's all of it. All right? Cool. We're Moving on. Take your pictures. It's going away. How to prepare for a flopper opportunity? So this sounds crazy. All right, but I actually prepared for that fire, which is crazy. I was totally prepared for it. So um, you're like, insurance scam? No, I'm totally kidding. Um, Um, Is this being recorded? All right, so when you're preparing for a flop opportunity, the first thing that it takes is imagination. One of the things that we hate to think about in our lives is the worst thing that can happen to us. So I'd like you just for a second to think about what would be the worst thing that could happen to your business. I was reading this magazine called Portland Monthly, I live in Portland. And they had this huge spread on how the city of Portland is not prepared for earthquakes and we are overdue for an earthquake by about a thousand years. And they're like, when it comes, it's going to be terrible and everybody's going to die. And I was like, oh, I'm filled with fear. And then I was like, oh, let me get rid of that. I'm going to take that fear and I'm going to change it into excitement. And I was like, all right, so cool. What do I do next? Well, I've imagined what my shop would look like after an earthquake. I don't have any work to do or anything. My people are totally slow. They don't have anything. Now I have to start to prepare for that inevitability. If there is an earthquake, what do I do for that? I had one shop at that point, just in Portland, and I thought, well, if I had a second shop that was far enough away that it wouldn't be affected by the earthquake but it was close enough that my trucks could drive to help us out, then I could be a little bit more prepared for this inevitability. And so we opened up a second shop in Seattle, which was far enough away. The earthquake wouldn't hit there, but we could drive in. And I was like, this is so great, because if the earthquake hits Seattle, then I'll be ready in Portland. And if it hits Portland, then I'll be ready in Seattle. Score! So you see how like endlessly optimistic about earthquakes? It's awesome. All right, so I prepared. We made up these little door hangers. They're super cute. They say, we can help. You don't have to go through this by yourself. We have trucks and strong people. We can help you out. We can paint. We can change carpet. We can, like, haul away trash, anything you need. Because I have no idea what the emergency is going to be, but I know that I have trucks and people and not any work to do because if there's a big, huge earthquake, nobody wants to stage at that point. They're like, staging, whatever. So I have these things. They have our contact information. Our addresses on the back of them. They're like, just contact us we'll help you out. So we prepared for that thing. The next thing we had to do is just manage that preparation. So last week I went up into the attic and I grabbed these and I was like, oh man, we still have the old address of the building where we had the fire that was still on there. And uh, they had our old logo. So I was like, we need to have these reprinted. And my assistant Cole, he was like, actually, we reprinted those six months ago. And I was like, sweet, you guys already took care of it, right on. Um, They have a better memory than I do. So once we're prepared and once we manage those preparations, then we just need to move on. We've thought about it. We've worried about the catastrophe. We've done it. This is me at the beach last week. And guess what I'm not thinking about? I'm not thinking about earthquakes. Those are my buddies. If you're going to take that picture here, it is how to prepare for a flop opportunity. Imagine, prepare, manage, and then just move on. Get rid of it. Keep going. So flop opportunity management. We're going to go through the fire and talk about exactly what happens when that flop lands in your lap and all you have to do is just not bat it away. That's it, all right? So it looks like this. Stop. As soon as you feel scared. All right? Stop. Second thing. This is what I had, this is where I had to stop, right? I saw this fire and I was like, oh, scared. All right, what do I do next? Breathe. Just want to take a second with all of you. I'm gonna to count to three. We're all gonna inhale very deep. We're gonna hold it for a second, then we're gonna let it go. Here we go, ready? One, two, three. Hold it and exhale. Do you feel better? I feel a little better. Although I might be a little bit excited out here. <laughs> so, all right, so we breathe. What's the next thing to do? Identify the flop. Figure out exactly what it is that you're dealing with. And this is what my identifying the flop looked like. Okay, so here we are at Spade Nursery. This is uh, two days after the fire. You can see the thing is destroyed. So that's what I walked into, identified it, and I was like, yep, it happened. And I was fresh at a time machine, so I couldn't undo it, so I had to deal with what the flop, whatever the heck it is, you gotta deal with it. So I identified the flop. The next thing you gotta do is you gotta accept it and say, yeah, it happened. All right, so this is what it looked like for me. So this is our little warehouse. We're in a temporary space here at 20 feet by 30 feet. <clears throat> we scored this the day after the fire. And uh, here's Chad, our creative director in this office, and he's moving some outdoor furniture for the guys to come back and pick up. Pretty much like this is it, man, 20 by 30 feet. Check that sucker out. Even got a little accessory shelves back there. We're on our way. You can see right there where I'm starting to accept it. We had come from 8,000 square feet, by the way. So now we're in a 20 by 30 space, so a little bit freaked out. Um, So then we need to choose excitement. So as soon as we're past that little bit of fear thing, we've taken that breath, we've realized what it is. We know we accepted it. Now we choose excitement, and this is what it looked like for me. So okay, so we made it into our second temporary space. We've got uh, just a little bit over 3,000 square feet in here. And uh, so much better than what we had, which was uh, 20 foot by 30 foot. And uh, this is way better. We've got like Linen Lane over here. We've got our accessory section. Um, We've even got a second floor where we keep a lot of our furniture. Um, So much better. This is Nick. Say hey Nick. Hey. There he is. Uh, So yeah, I think we're at this point, we're 14 days after the fire. And uh, we're moving into our permanent space at the beginning of September. And uh, feeling so much better out there. That's so much better. You can start to see where excitement kind of starts to come in. That day of the fire, I called all 30 of my employees, and I said, I just need you to know you still have a job, but our building burnt down. And those were terrible phone calls to make. And it was up to me to try to wear my emotions on my sleeve. And you can see that both Chad and Nick in those videos are both in fairly good spirits, despite the fact that like half of our business had just burned down like within the last two weeks, that excitement spreads to people around you. So the next step is to find the opportunity. And my PR person called me right after the fire and said, "I think we should go on the news and we should talk about how we had this fire and we should try to win some sympathy off of it. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that at all. And she's like, why not? She's like, the guy next door to you totally got some sympathy out of it. And I was like, I don't want to say a word about this. We're super lucky the news didn't even mention that our space was there. Don't even know. I said, why don't we like wait for some time, rise back like the phoenix, and then make the news story. I'd be like, yes, I've done it. And she was like, oh, that's a really good idea. And so around the same time, I realized that like, the home staging industry didn't make any sense to me the way that it works. Home staging right now, the way that it works is that you pay um, your home stager ahead of time, and then they go and they stage the house, and then you pay rent every month for as long as they have your furniture. And so the longer the house is on the furniture as on the market, the more money that they make. But oddly enough, you and your seller, the longer the house is on the market, the lower the price gets and the less money that you make. And if the house doesn't sell, do you get paid? No, does the seller get paid? No, does the home stager get paid? Mhm. Let me get this straight. You got paid to fail. Good job. So I didn't think that was fair. So I was like, Hey, what if we just switch this all around and we just made, changed our commissions so that we got paid out of closing, just like the real estate agent? What if we called it guaranteed? And They're like, Yeah, that's super cool. I'm like, Okay, well, awesome. Let's do that. All right. Well, let's just pour. Let's just pour ourselves in this opportunity. So we took and we put all of our energy into this opportunity where we had to change the market, change our our market, and then also use the fire in order to bring that to the future to our audience. And this is what it looked like for us. July fourth, two thousand eighteen. I've got 14 dinner guests at my house, eight of whom are staying the night. I'm setting off firecrackers in the front street for the kids to look at and wave their sparklers around, and my phone rings. Pick up the phone as I'm lighting a firecracker, and my landlord says I got some bad news. And I was like, "What's going on?" And he says, uh, "Your building's on fire." And I was like, "Okay, have you seen it yet?" "No, I haven't seen it." Yet. And I go inside and I Google Seattle Fire and there's this footage.
0: That's a three alarm fire that broke out tonight is still smoldering in Soto right now. Chopper Seven was over the scene shortly after it broke out on the East Marginal Way South around seven o'clock tonight.
1: There's some smoke flames shooting out of the front of my building. And a humongous fire hose shooting into the front of my building. And boy, it was so much worse than I imagined. I drive up there the next day to see what all we've lost. And as I walk through, I realize that nothing's left. Nothing's salvageable. I go into planning mode. We go through and we don't miss a single project. We continue to book solid all the way through the rest of July, one of our busiest months, traditionally. We were lucky that day. Nobody was hurt. We were well insured. We got hit hard. We had planned to be closed for five days already. I had five days to get back on our feet. And the truth of the matter is is that we staged for the next month solid and didn't miss a single date and haven't yet. In nine years of business, Spade & Archer has never missed an installation, not once. I started to realize Spade & Archer Guaranteed isn't just about selling your house. Sure, if your house doesn't sell, you don't pay us anything. That's how Guaranteed works. What I realize is that maybe Guaranteed is what we've always been. Spade and Archer always shows up. We always finish on time. Even on our worst day, it's Spade and Archer. It's Guaranteed. It goes on to talk about how great Guaranteed is, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so... (laughs) This is that picture. This is how to how to manage a flop opportunity. Stop as soon as you feel scared. Breathe. Identify the flop. Accept the flop. Choose excitement. Find the opportunity. Pour yourselves into it. And the flop will resolve itself. So now I ask you this question. I want you to think about what keeps you up at night right now. What are you scared of? What's your flop? Just hold that in your heart right now for a second. I'm going to talk to you about what my flop is right now. Because we're past the fire. That was last year. So right now, this is what I'm looking at. So I have three very weird sleeping additions. I do sleep fighting. Um, I do something called sexomnia, which sounds like a lot of fun, not really. And <laughs> and something called drunken arousalness, which also sounds really fun. Like, woohoo, I'm drunk. So I didn't really know that these were actual things. Now, this is just goofy stuff that I did. And it was actually Ron Swanson on Parson Rec that I saw that he had sleep fighting. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. This is actual thing. And when I looked it up in Wikipedia, it said, you know, uh, people sleep and sleep and then they fight when they're sleeping and it's highly associated with early onset dementia. And I was like, oh, that's kind of creepy. So then I looked up, I was like, sometimes I have sex with my husband while I'm asleep. And they're like, sexomnia, highly associated with early onset dementia. And I was like, oh, that's two for two. And I was like, sometimes I don't know where I am, who I am, or who's in bed with me when I wake up for about 90 seconds or so, which by the way, kind of terrifying every morning. And they were like, yeah, that's a thing, that's called drunken arousalness, also highly associated with early onset dementia. And I was like, hmm, I might want to talk to a doctor about this. So I go and I talk to my doctor, and he's like, hey, let's do some testing on you. So they did a couple of rounds of testing. One was called baseline testing for my cognitive ability, Um, basically testing how smart I am. And they make you do things like this, like read these numbers, 745257424. Still pretty with it so far. And so they test you until you fail. They want to see how hard they can make the questions until you fail. And so inevitably for eight hours in a row, you feel super stupid the entire time. Came back, I was at that like highly superior intelligence level, not quite genius. They don't do IQ scores anymore. They just give you words, so that's where I came back. I'm in good shape right now. They'll retest me every three years to see what happens. They stuck me in the MRI machine, and they also give me a sleep study. They put 87 anodes attached to my body and make me sleep like that with that big box on my chest. Needless to say, not a good night's sleep, just saying. And they came back with this number. I'm 45 years old, and they came back, and they said, you have 15 years until you're down to 20%. And 20% is the point when somebody who is highly superior and highly educated can no longer hide it from their friends and family. It's when you stop remembering conversations 30 seconds into it. It's when you can't drive yourself home. And needless to say, I felt scared, terrified. And I was uh, not really remembering the steps of what a opportunity was until I saw this quote. When one door closes, another opens. And we look so long at the closed door, we fail to see the one that has been opened for us. And a lot of people had said similar things to this, but this particular one was said by this lady, um, Helen Keller. And I thought to myself, man, if this chick who is deaf and blind can see the open door before her, why can't I? And so I did that thing. And let's all do a deep breath in on three, one, two, three, and let it out. Take your deep breath and remember your fluctuation management. So I came up with my 15-year rule book. So if I've got 15 good years left, I want to use them to the fullest extent. And these are the rules that I came up with. Number one, no more no's. No, as a business owner, is extremely inexpensive. (laughs) When when somebody comes to you and they say, I want to buy new jackets, you can say, no, it doesn't cost anything. Or they say, I want to go on vacation. You say, no, because it doesn't cost anything. This talent agent called me up from LA, and he said, um, this is when I had an office in Portland and Seattle. And he said, hey, we've got four houses down in LA and HGTV needs a home stager and we can't find anybody in LA. Can you guys stage four houses for us in seven days? And my immediate reaction was, no, I don't have staff, I don't have building, I don't have furniture, I don't have anything down there. But I wasn't allowed to say no, so I said, give me two hours. Turns out the show was called Rock the Block. I talked to a couple of people I came back, I called them, I said, "Yeah, we can do it." And we ended up staging four houses in LA literally 7 days later. And so it looked like this, the show premiered on Tuesday, and it actually ended up launching our LA office, which by the way, some of you are looking at me like, "Ridiculous." And so this is me in my 17,000 square foot space that so we just opened our business up in LA. It tripled the size of our business and all because I chose not to say no. The next one was save the best for the best. Um, Shortly after my building burned down, this guy right here with the red hair on that side, that's my dad, hasn't talked to me about 20 years uh, since I came out of the closet. That's my sister, my little brother. That guy, Jim Barriant, he got arrested for being a child molester, so (laughs) pretty high class dude. And I was faced with this choice. Do I put energy into defending and sticking up for a child molester, or do I put energy into tearing down and making my dad feel bad about himself, and I realized that he didn't deserve any of my energy, positive or negative. And instead, I put my energy into these people. This is my sister. I hadn't seen her in almost 10 years. I talked to her three or four times a week, every single week. Now, this is my brother. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. I flew across the country to go visit with him for three days. And this is my other sister. I hadn't seen her in almost 40 years. We sat down for dinner last Saturday and had a conversation, just the two of us. I saved the best for the best. My last rule was I ain't got time. And here's what it looks like. At the beginning of 2018, I had never left North America. I'd been to Tijuana once. I went to Vancouver once. So I'd left the country, but never America. <laughs> and somebody from my business group called me up, and they're like, hey, are you free from April 7th to 11th? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you want to go to China? And I was like, yeah. He was gay, too. So that's actually what the conversation sounded like. (Laughter) um, <laughs> So um, I ended up in Macau, China, like for free. And I was like, there's a pink wall and I have on a pink jacket. I'm going to take a picture with it. And then like literally the day after we closed on Rock the Block, I ended up in Italy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm traveling out the country, like around the world now. And this year we're going to Cuba for a few days. And then we're headed to the Azores Islands off the coast of Portugal. And then this is the coolest one. We're going for two weeks to South Africa to go to a regional Burning Man event called Africa Burn. I've never been to Burning Man before. I don't know anything. But here's the thing. Like I ain't got time not to do this stuff. So there's my rule book, no more no's, save the best for the best, and I ain't got time. And while I still love luck as a concept invented by the weak to explain their failures, I think I like this one better. The only difference between the lucky and the unlucky is their ability to recognize an opportunity in a failure. And so we must choose. Do we cry over the burned down building, or do we search for the new lease? Do we stare at the closed door or do we fumble blindly for the one that has been opened for us? Do we submit to the diagnosis or do we allow it to make us better? Do we give in to the flop or do we dig down deep inside of ourselves and yank out the flop opportunity?
0: Wow, Justin, that was amazing. I feel like there's so many levels of things that I am just sort of processing through and thinking about in listening to that talk. First of all, I mean, it's super important to start with the piece that I got to see you and I got to see that you had these really remarkable pink pants on. Um, I just want to start there for all of the listeners. <laughs> Justin had amazing pants on.
1: They were they were very yes. pink, yes. matched with a maroon jacket. It takes It takes a lot to pull that off. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just feel like that was one visual that the listeners did not get to see in, in only hearing your voice. So, I mean, I guess my first question just as someone who like knows you and loves you is like this diagnosis Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah.
1: So oddly enough, the theme of that symposium was shift was like shifting Ah. from one thing to another. Like, how do you shift? Mm -hmm. And I had had a talk with uh, Nick Maki, who's kind of the head of Windermere education. we had had a very personal private talk about this diagnosis of being told that I had early onset dementia and I had kind of forgotten all about it. And he had invited me to come and speak at this symposium and I had an entirely different Different talk ready to go oh really? and I was handed the brochure I was speaking on the second day I was handed the brochure and the brochure talked about my diagnosis <gasps> and I was like oh fuck and Justin. I was supposed to talk at like 10 o'clock in the morning and so I woke up at like 4 a.m. and completely reworked my entire talk redid all of my slides and included this hard about this diagnosis. Wait,
0: so just you were, first of all, having to pull something together a.m. early morning and also making the decision to put something out there that's remarkably personal.
1: Well, yeah, but it was in the brochure. And here's the thing is like, I had told Nick I would do it. I was like, yeah, I'll totally talk about that. But you know, one of the fun things about having a diagnosis like that is that you forget. (laughs) You're like, Oh my God, I said I would
0: talk about this.
1: And then here's the, here's the even more fucked up part is that like, uh, I was matched with the world's leading specialist for Lewy body disease, which is what they thought that I had Uh after going and seeing this world's leading specialist about three months after I did that talk, I was told this is a complete and total misdiagnosis. (gasps) You will not have early onset dementia. This is completely false. And it took me another three months to even let go of that. And talking to my husband, wow. he was like, why are you still pretending like you're having this? I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I'm like, I, I have it. The doctor said, I probably won't get it, but most likely I will. And he's like, that's not what the doctor said. So I actually called the doctor back, who, by the way, he's like Colombian, like 42 years old. He has an MD and a PhD. And he's the most handsome man I've seen in my entire <laughs> life, plus like the <laughs> best bedside <laughs> banner ever. I'm sure he works with like really like old, dementia, people all the time. And like, he was just the nicest night. I'm like, how are you single? This is crazy. (laughs) Probably because he spent his entire life in school. But we called him back again. He took our phone call a second time. And I said, what I heard you say was my brain looks good, but I'm probably going to get this anyway. And Joe goes, is that what you said? The doctor was like, no, I did not say that at all. I said, there is not a chance in Hades that you have this. I've seen brains that have Lewy body disease and your brain doesn't look like that at all. It was almost like being pregnant, telling everybody that you're pregnant and then having a miscarriage and being like, then you have to untell everybody that you're pregnant. I had this thing that I was grasping onto like so hard. I'm making all these decisions. We sold our house. We like made all kinds of changes in our lives. And because I had this diagnosis and I was like, fuck it. If I'm out of here in 15 years, i got to make some changes to our life. And I had to like kind of very slowly let go of that. So it was... That was a tough one. And like, oh, as I walked off stage, Nick was right there. Like, as I walked off stage, he wrapped me up in a big hug and I lost it, like broke oh. down in tears because that talk was, that was some vulnerability right there, sure man. Holy cow.
0: Fucking <laughs> intense. Justin, I mean, there was like the flop opportunity on top of the floppertunity. It was like, I mean, not that being misdiagnosed is a flap for you necessarily, but it's like you, you just had multiple times to sort of practice, like, what's the lesson here or what can I get out of? Like tracing it back to the conversation about flap opportunity, and like, how do you, how do you rise from those ashes? Like literally for you, you know, <laughs> in the whole yes. first, yes. I was struck by both pieces in that talk. The grace with which outwardly you appeared to handle your huge amazing beautiful core of your business building just burning down like just burning down also the diagnosis sort of around that on top of that and then the misdiagnosis like my mind is is spinning i mean first of all i'm like wildly relieved to hear that, you know, we don't have f- 15 years of, of your bright, crazy wit and snark and intelligence. We can look forward to that for a much longer period of time. I bet there are just so many layers to, to all of those pieces.
1: It was uh, It was definitely a rough year. And I've always been just this like crazy optimist, like always ridiculously cup is half full. And although that year completely sucked, like so many more aspects of my life got so much better yeah. as a result of going through those harder times. And certainly like I'm very privileged. I'm a white male in America, who owns a business and has ridiculous amounts of insurance. And so, you know, where those would have been devastating blows for somebody with less privilege than me, they were tough, but they didn't completely ruin me. And I think that, you know, we spend so much time dealing with our champagne problems that we tend to forget like, oh, you know, shit's going wrong. I remember like I was on a phone conversation in my car with a client who was freaking out because we had filled a bowl in the house that we had staged for the client with these little ninja dudes that were spray painted and silver, They're like mm-hmm. little, little guys like holding swords, like almost like army men, but like little ninja dudes. The client was freaking out. They're like, why would you put this in our house? This is ridiculous. This is stupid. I don't understand why you're doing this. And I started to explain, I started talking about it and I was saying like, Hey, you know, when parents, Show up at an open house, their kids are bored out of their gourds. And so we hide toys in our home staging so that kids have something to play with. Because if your kids are entertained (laughs) during an open house, you will feel more comfortable in that house than you will in any other house. Like we don't do this. This is not an accident. Yes,
0: it's you've reduced the stress level of the parents wandering through. As
1: I'm describing this, I'm in my car, I'm driving right in front of the convention center in Portland. There are light rail tracks that are right there. And there's this woman who's on a bicycle. and she's a 10 speed. And I don't know if you've ever ridden on a bike near train tracks, but with your front tire slips into that slot, you're going down her front tire slipped into the slot. I was right behind her in my Jeep. She like face planted, like she literally caught the concrete with oh, her Justin. upper cheekbone. And as she went down, she's laying on the ground and her foot is doing that thing where it's just kind of like twitching, just her foot is twitching. And I'm like, oh my God, this woman is dead. And I was like, hey, uh, real estate agent, I need to jump off the phone. Somebody just bailed on their bike and I think they might be dead. I need to go help this person and I'll call you back as soon as I'm done. So I get out of the car, I have a moving blanket in the back of my car, so I go over and I put my blanket over her, and um, yeah, she wakes up, and she's crying, and she says, um, me and my mom are homeless, and I was on my way to a job interview, and I'm not uh, going to get the job now. And, you know, I mean, it's just uh, like... I think about you know my problems. I mean, and like her, like half her face is like smashed in. I just sat there and I held her hand and I was like, "You're gonna be okay, babe. Yeah. It's gonna be okay. We're gonna take care of you." You know, I call the ambulance and I call the hospital and like. The ambulance showed up and there was like a, a guy from the convention center came out and like he was just like so cold her oh. he wouldn't like even like touch her or anything and I'm just like I just was like just wanted to just hold her yeah. hand and I like stayed with her for a few minutes yeah and the ambulance showed up and like I told them what happened and they're like okay you can go I pulled my jeep and like blocked her so that yeah. she wouldn't get run over by another car yeah so jump back in the car call the real estate agent back and I was like hey I'm back this person the ambulance came they're not dead but she definitely broke her cheek the real estate agent said you know what I'm I'm cool, I don't have a problem with oh. the, with little pieces. And it was like just this big uh. reminder of like our champagne problems, yeah. really not that big of a fucking deal. And it's just a reminder that like, you know, <laughs> If we can't turn our our champagne problems into flop opportunities, there's something wrong with us. If we're having a problem that's defeating us to the point where, like, hey, we've got a roof over our head, yeah. our basic elemental needs are met, we're safe, we're fed, we have clothing, we're we're all good. Most of our problems exist up in that level of like ego. Yeah. You know, that's where our problems exist. It's really easy to turn ego problems into opportunities, for sure. Hopefully, if anybody's listening to this podcast, <laughs> that will be the lesson here is that like when the next time you're upset about something just think about that woman think about that woman that caught her bicycle tire in that in that train like that was a blow like i mean it that really set her and her mom back i mean here's this person that has nothing and she's taking care of her mom i'm like yeah that's where i was at
0: yeah absolutely and i i think it's so Easy to get bogged down in the inconveniences of daily life and the things that are frustrating. And taking my son to school this morning, I got stuck behind a train for 40 minutes. I thought I was going to lose my shit. And then, sort of like, (laughs) Pulling back from that and connecting with what really matters, and realizing—I think—in your flop opportunity story, I just was struck so quickly by how you were like, "Okay, I love the taking a breath. <laughs> I love the okay, stop, stop, pull your shit together." By date, you know, I mean, I think that it's such a simple thing. Uh, we practice it regularly with Carlisle. Like, okay, bud, you know, what can you do to sort of help calm yourself down? And I think it, its it it goes well beyond the scope of a five-year-old. Like, I think we have a tremendous ability to sort of calm our systems with breath. And so I love that you included that.
1: Did you take a breath with me when I was talking about it?
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: I did too, (laughs) I listened to it again. It's been over like a year and a half since I've listened to that talk. I listened to it again for this podcast. I took the breath. Yes. And like, I felt so much better. Yeah.
0: Not even that I was like having a bad day.
1: It's just stopping and taking a breath and holding it and exhaling it. Like, yeah. (sighs) Yep. It's so good. And it
0: just calms our systems down so much. And once your system is calmer, you just have the ability to think through things. And so I love that your flopportunity, flop the steps are start with taking a breath, calm your shit down for fuck's sake.
1: Stop. <laughs> yes. Stop is the first step. Yes. Take a breath is number two. <laughs> yeah,
0: because it sort of like <laughs> clears the slate for a minute and it allows you to, okay, what's next? What are, What's the opportunity here? Like all the other steps that you put in. I think that resiliency and, and being Able to not get completely buried by whatever is going on. And I mean, we all deal with so much. I mean, it's been a year plus of things none of us could possibly imagine. I mean, I hope that there's lots of folks out there who have been able to turn this year into something unexpected.
1: I think the way that that I talked about it on the talk is as if it happens all in minutes. Yeah. The diagnosis was a lot more fluid. It took a lot, it took months to get to that point of like, how is, where's the opportunity? this yeah with the fire that entire process happened over the course of two weeks like, having the flop and identifying where the opportunity was and then moving forward with that like it all happened that's a fast flop opportunity yeah. and so you know if you're going through an experience and you're finding you're taking those those first few steps and you're getting that done in a day you're killing it yeah if it takes two weeks you're still doing a great job If yeah. it takes three months that is okay yeah Flock opportunities don't happen in five minutes yeah. it takes a while to be able to see past the problem to where the opportunity is. I and I noticed that made it sound like it was this thing that happens in like, you know, in six <laughs> minutes you can make your next opportunity. <laughs> That's cool Call gonna, now for free reading. The
0: title of your book, The Six <laughs> Minutes <of> Opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, it is such a process. But I also just appreciated how succinctly, I mean, I I think in order for us to, our brains to be able to track things, you know, I appreciated how succinctly you sort of put that together and offered that up because I think the steps do need to be simple for our brains and we need to be able to to realize that we we can come out of something.
1: Biggest takeaway for me on that whole thing is the relationship between being excited and being scared, that they are exactly the same thing and scared has fear and excitement doesn't. Yeah.
0: I have to say, when I heard you say that, I had this moment of like, huh? Like <laughs> I just had to like <laughs> stop and like <laughs> think that through a little bit. I haven't heard those things sort of correlated in the same way. And I think that the end result was like, oh yeah,
1: that is. I talk about it in terms of roller coasters. Yeah. So you know when you're waiting in line <laughs> for the roller coaster and you are watching like load after load of people like scream down this death-defying hill. When you're waiting in line, you're, you have this feeling I call it the I have to go pee feeling. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, crap. I have to go pee. There are two versions of that. There's the version where you're like, I need to find an exit and get the hell out of here because I don't want to be on that. And that's fear. And there's the I cannot wait until it is me being hurled down that hill. And that's excitement. It's the same feeling. One has fear and one doesn't. And so when we can take our fear, as long as we're out of danger, if we take our scared feelings and turn it into excitement, we can be so much more productive because there's a lot of energy that comes from fear and being scared and from excitement all three of those things bring us a lot of energy fear and scared move us towards safety excitement moves us towards opportunity and since most of our problems do not really deal with our physical safety they deal with our egos It is so easy to move past that. So
0: I mean, I think that's such a gift to think about as a new agent, because I feel like as amazing as this past year has been for me in a lot of ways, the fear, excitement, (laughs) <laughs> line is real thin in my life. And, you know, going
1: you dance back and forth yeah, over it all day long. Yes. Yeah.
0: And going from, you know, 13 <laughs> years of federal employment where my paycheck came every month and, you know, I had great health insurance and, you know, all of the things that I think I took for granted so much. I just every once in a while, I'm like, <gasps> just become completely terrified um, at the, you know, change in direction my life has taken. So I think learning to do something and move that fear into excitement is so incredibly helpful.
1: You know, we talked with Marsha Duncan on our last episode about preparing for the future. Yeah, So much of real estate is the way to take the fear out of it is to make sure that there's a nice nest egg, a nice soft place to land. It always freaks me out when I see an agent in their first year and they are, you know, rocking the Coco Chanel suit and the brand new G-Wagon. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you got your first check and you went out and bought a car with it. Okay. Yeah, uh, I always fear for those folks because the market can change on a dime. Yeah. I mean, it's fast yep. and volatile. And so most certainly a lot of being able to make opportunity comes down to having a nice soft place to land, yeah. being prepared. It's not just about being an optimist. It's about being prepared and then being an optimist. Yeah.
0: And I, I do, <laughs> I definitely recognized and recognized that early on that I was going to be able to sleep better at night if I was stashing some money away. And I mean, obviously that's a conversation Glenn and I have had you know, frequently about how to make sure we can weather whatever comes. You know, I think when I was younger, it was just like, it was so much more difficult to think that through and actually stash money away because it was so much more fun to, you know, buy the Chanel suit. (laughs) Uh, And now that I I can totally see you in a Chanel suit. I want the next
1: time we go out, I want to see you in a Chanel suit.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I just know that I would take you shopping for one if I ever uh, went that direction. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah, we're going. (laughs) You'd be my wingman
0: for sure. (laughs) I do think that's certainly one way to reduce my level of generalized fear (laughs) is to have that little nest egg. (laughs) Like I said, when I started this, there were just so many levels of your talk that spoke to me. And then secondarily realizing that you were actually given a really intense misdiagnosis. And I really loved the things that came out of the diagnosis for you. Like even if you and your family made some Quick shifts that you wouldn 't have made had you been not been misdiagnosed <laughs> is that a double negative um, had you <laughs> i 'm curious this may sound terrible i don 't mean it to like there was a little gift in that crazy there was a
1: huge gift in that I mean I got to have all of the benefits of having a timer put on my life, and all of the the decision making processes where like anything in my life where i wasn 't truly living or anything where I was suffering fools. I got to just basically say, like, you're out. And I mean, I cut a lot of people out of my life, a lot of people out of my life, where I just basically said, like, look, you bring me pain on a daily basis. You bring me zero joy. And I can't have you in my life anymore. And it gave me permission to say goodbye to those people. Because of that, my life is so much better. On top of that, I also am not going to completely lose my mind in 15 years. No,
0: and you invited some people back into your life in a way that feels really thoughtful and intentional. So you did the culling of folks that maybe were just like the placeholders and the space taker uppers or the energy suckers, worst case scenario, and and perhaps invited in some things that will be pretty meaningful for you for the rest of your life, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I don't know if there's there is a way to set a false border on yourself because like i really i believed. Yeah, you know when a doctor tells you that I believe.
0: Yeah, fuck. You're just like, yeah.
1: I don't know if there's a way to like do that in like a theoretical format where you say like, okay, well 15 years from now, you know, and I think 15 times 12 is like 184 or something like that. I forget what the math was, but um, I was literally counting down months Yeah. and my husband said that I was the most unpleasant I've ever been in my entire life (laughs) during that period, by the way. Because I was saying to him, I was like, I think I like myself better when I have a timer on my life. And And he was like, like, "Uh, no, uh, no. he's like, you're terrible. You're so much better now. And I was like, oh, So, I mean, I think I got to experience that without it being real. And I think most people who go through that experience are like, you have colon cancer and you have three years to live. And people are like, okay, now I have to make all these decisions. The added benefit is that you get to make all those really, you know, life-changing decisions. The part that sucks is that you're dead in three years. I don't get, I'm getting all the good and none of the bad. So
0: like it's- I don't think you can set that any other way. That's why that there's two edges to that sword for sure, because I'm sure it caused you so much stress and so much discomfort and sounds like stress at home and, you know, terror on some levels. So, you know, that's the other side of that coin. But I don't think there's a way for any of us to experience that without going through what you did. My takeaway from this is just learning by example as much as I possibly can from the decisions that you made. As hard as that is, I always wish we were better at that. As humans seem to need to like stumble through our own experiences, we can't just be like, oh, you did that, that didn't go well, I'm not gonna do it. Instead, we're like, yeah, I'm gonna go head first in to
1: that? I get 90% of that benefit. And yeah. and hopefully folks that get to listen to this or people who listen to that talk, they're going to get 10 or yeah. 20% of that benefit. Yep. And so at least it's something, yeah. it's something that, and you know, an EO, we don't give each other advice. EO is entrepreneurs yeah. organization, the business group that I belong to. We do not give each other advice. We are not allowed to give each other advice. We are allowed to speak from experience. And so I'll go in and I'll be like, Hey, I have a employee that's sexually harassing another employee. What do I do? And I can then go around the table and they can, seven people can, tell me their experiences where they've had that happen in their business and what they did with it, how it worked out or how it did not work out. I can learn from the experience and then go back and solve it the best way I possibly can. And maybe I get 10 or 20% of each of their experiences, but learning from other people's experiences, hugely valuable. On a side note, the early onset dementia doctor um, had me go through a secondary sleep study and I ended up getting a sleep apnea device, which allowed me to sleep better almost all of those conditions, the sexomnia, the sleep fighting and the arousal drunkenness or drunken arousalness. I think it's arousal arousal. drunkenness. Almost all of those are totally gone. I had one sleep fighting episode like maybe two weeks ago, but I mean, it's been like over a year since that happened. And it happens when I'm really, really, really tired. Yeah. All of those things have pretty much subsided, which means that like my brain is washing itself with the Lewy body proteins every night, which means I'm not getting a buildup, which means that I'm not gonna go crazy insane. So Robin Williams had Lewy body disease when he died. And essentially the the way that you die is that you have this overwhelming depression that does not react at all to antidepressants. Oh. You lose your sense of cell, you lose your sense of taste. So it sounds a lot like COVID in that way. And you kill yourself yeah. um, because you're so bloody depressed. And you are crazy nuts during the day and completely sane at night. It is a terrible way to die, and turns out not going to happen. So how happy am I? My co-host is Amy <laughs> Romberg. I'm Justin Reardon. It has been such an absolute pleasure. Amy, where can folks find you on the interwebs?
0: Uh, you can find me at amyromberg.com.
1: Fantastic. I'd like to say thank you so much to all of the folks that have reached out and to be guests on Behind the Yard Sign. Your stories are amazing. If you have a story that you like to tell, or even if you don't have a story you like to tell, we'll 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 pull it out of you. Give us a call, (laughs) reach out, say hi. And you can find us at spade-archer.com. Just click on the podcast link that you can find behind the yard sign on everywhere that podcasts are available. Our editor is Richie. He does a fantastic job. Thank you for making us sound so intelligent. Our music was written, composed, and performed by Joff Metz. You can find him at fivestarguitars.com. We'll see you next time behind the yard sign. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade & Archer Studios. Spade & Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.